0: Today's reading is taken from John chapter 7, verses 25 to 44. Now some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is not this the man whom they are trying to kill? And here he is speaking openly, but they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Messiah? Yet we know where this man is from, but when the Messiah comes, no one one will know where he is from. Then Jesus cried out he was, as he was teaching in the temple, You know me, and you know where I am from. I have not come of my own, but the one who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many in the crowd believed in him and were saying, When the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than this man has done? Then the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering such things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent the temple police to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will search for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will search for me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. And as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were to receive, for as yet there was no Spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some in the crowd said, This is really the prophet. And others said, This is the Messiah. But some asked, Surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? Has not the scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a diversion in the crowd because of him, and some of them wanted to arrest, arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Shall we start with a prayer? Father God, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for sending Jesus to inspire us, counsel us and save us. As we study his life and teachings this morning, please open our hearts and minds to your leading. In Jesus' name, amen. In all the reporting over the last few days um, on the remarkable life of Queen Elizabeth II and her reign, as our monarch I've been so encouraged by how her personal Christian faith has featured so prominently I was listening to a tribute of her life on Radio 4 and they discussed at length how her Christian personal faith was central to this extraordinary woman And I suppose that it shouldn't be of any surprise to us because throughout the course of her reign, Queen Elizabeth spoke so frequently about her own faith. In the year 2000, she said, for me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. And she also wrote, to what greater inspiration and counsel can we turn? than to the imperishable truth to be found in this treasure house, the Bible. Our late queen was inspiring in so many ways, as the testimony of so many people over the last few days have have shown us again. And I think it's clear to us that she knew who Jesus was, and she certainly knew his teaching. And so as we move to, to God's word that was so well read to us just now, what we see in our passage this morning is actually different to that. What we actually see this morning is that there were many confused opinions about who Jesus is. Not many knew who he was. And so we're going to look at this passage under three headings. And I'd love it, um, for those of you who can, if you could follow it in the church Bibles. so the green Bibles in front of you and it's, it's John chapter 7 and it's, I think it's page 96 of the, the New Testament. And we're going to look at it under these three headings. We're firstly going to look at who is Jesus. Secondly, we're then going to look at division and the Prince of Peace. And then finally and thirdly, we're going to look at rivers of living water. So, first of all, who is Jesus? We see these confused opinions in front of us here that Jesus has brought up. We can see that Jesus is teaching, is teaching courageously and boldly. Is in the final year of his earthly ministry, we see that in chapter 6. And we also see here in chapter 7 that he's speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And everybody is taking notice of him. And we can see these different views here. If you look earlier on in, in chapter 7, look at verse 12, he say, some people are saying, he's a good man. Others, again, in verse 12, we see they're saying, he's a deceiver. And as we heard read just now, in verse 26, some of the people of Jerusalem are wondering out loud whether Jesus might be the Messiah, the long for saviour, rescuer, the saviour that they've been waiting for. And they wonder that because he's not being arrested by the Jewish leaders, does that mean that the Jewish leaders think he's the Messiah as well? We see that in verse 26. But then hold on, if you look at verse 27, they then say, well, maybe we need to diet ourselves about that because of the legend that the Messiah would suddenly appear and no one would know where the Messiah had come from. And they thought this because in Malachi, in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says that God's messenger would suddenly appear in his temple so the rabbis took that to mean that no one would know his background so these are people saying well hold on how can jesus be the messiah because we wouldn't know where he comes from and if you look in verse 41 they know that he's from galilee you can see the struggling here but what we also see is they didn't know he was born in bethlehem and we see that in verse 42 so if you're following me here what we can see is, wow, they are struggling. And all of these things made some conclude he absolutely can't be the Messiah, he can't be the Christ. In verse 40 we say, see some people saying he must be a prophet, but in verse 31 what we see is that many people did believe in him. There was confusion in the minds of the people listening to Jesus. And Jesus, in spite of all of these mistaken concepts and superficial arguments about him, he goes right to the heart of the issue here, as he always does. And he does it in these words. Look at it from verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he was teaching in the temple, You know me and you know where I am from. I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. This reminds me of chapter 6 of this gospel where we see how he was teaching there that he is the true bread from heaven where he says in verse 38 of chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. His teaching is clear. He's saying, I come from God the Father. I am his son, and you don't know him. And so it looks as though in that first part of verse 28 that Jesus is speaking with some irony. He's saying, you think that you know me and where I'm from. And I'll grant that in a superficial sense, you do know that. You know that I'm from Galilee. You know my relatives according to the flesh, but you don't really know me at all as evidence that you don't know my Father in heaven. You don't know God. You don't know about my divine nature, my unity with the Father. Jesus here is testifying to who he truly is. He's come from the Father. He is the promised Messiah. He is one with the Father. And so these breathtaking statements that we're saying, seeing here, must either be true Or Jesus was a liar, he was a fraud, he was a deceiver, or he was just plain mad. This is why the hearers were confused. How could he be saying that he was the Messiah and the Son of God and still be a good person if that wasn't true? They're they're listening to this, they're confused by it. It's radical teaching. And we can see in this passage how God the Father had a perfect plan for Jesus to die and to rise again, even though he's incensed the religious authorities, and they wanted to arrest him. They were unable to, because look at verse 30. If we look at verse 30 together, it says, his hour had not yet come. God's plan of redemption for all humankind, for all creation, will be be fulfilled at the appointed time. Verses 32 to 36 shows that Jesus understands this. He will go to be with his father. Those listening cannot comprehend, but Jesus knows the path that he is on. And so as I studied this passage, I felt compelled to focus once again on the cornerstone of my faith to focus on who Jesus is. Because that's what his teaching The Feast of the Tabernacles is bringing those in front of him to ask, who is Jesus? And I've focused on what he's done for me, what he's done for each one of us. Jesus was sent by his Father to speak truth, as we see he does here, to face hostility and misunderstanding, as we see here, and to die on the cross and rise again to save us. As it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son to die on the cross to save us because he is a God of love. We are loved, the Bible says, with an everlasting love. And I thought if there's nothing else that I or we take from this passage, it should be that Jesus is the Christ and he came because of the Father's love for each one of us. And I think the knowledge of who Jesus is gives strength and purpose to us, as it did for our late Queen Elizabeth. I was always struck by her annual Christmas message. In 2014, she said, her faith in Jesus was the anchor in my life. In 2016, she said, billions of people now follow Christ's teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them because Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love. What a wonderful truth for us to remind ourselves of this morning. That God loves us. He calls us to him. God had a plan at an appointed time. And by sending Jesus, he's paved a way for us to have a relationship with him. Let's move on to the second point division and the prince of peace so when i was studying this passage having seen who jesus is i was then struck by the emotions that jesus evoked in others and you see it powerfully in this passage the chief priests and the pharisees want to arrest him we see that if you look in verse 32 There's division. People are confused. And I didn't want to hide from that when I was studying and also um, giving this talk this morning. And when Jesus cried out in verse 28, as we've just seen, but the one who sent me is true, and you, you do not know him, what he's saying is explosive, especially as he knows that there's a tide of hostility and opposition towards him. Jesus is saying here at the feast, including to those religious leaders and Pharisees, he's saying, you don't know God. And I think it's probably like pouring petrol on a fire. And so I pondered, is Jesus being a deliberate troublemaker here? Is he delighting in taunting these Jewish leaders, trying to make them angry, trying to make them harm him? And no, I don't don't at all think that he is. I think what we're seeing here is that Jesus is a truth teller. He's a truth teller in a world of self-delusion. He doesn't dress anything up or overbalance one aspect against the other. He tells it just the way it is. And therefore the reaction to his words and actions are predictable. If We see in verse 43, as was read, so there was a division in the crowd because of him scripture is absolutely clear that our heavenly father is a god of peace he is a peace bringer as paul says in romans the god of peace will soon crush satan under your feet as paul says in the first letter to the thessalonians may god himself the god of peace sanctify you through and through jesus is called the prince of peace we know We know that God is a peacemaker and we know that Jesus' death and resurrection is the key to that peace. Jesus made peace by his blood shed on the cross. But my reflection this week, having been studying this passage, has been that the crunch is this. We must not equate peacemaking with peace achieving. A peacemaker longs for peace, works for peace, and sacrifices for peace. But the attainment of peace, it may not come in this world. The gospel creates peace with God, with God our Father. But the world that crucified Jesus does not always want the peace that he offers It does not always want that relationship. So when people are confronted by the truth of God, in some, the spirit brings about repentance. But in many others, as we see here, it brings about an anger towards God and to the messenger. And we've got to accept, therefore, that living for God can result in division and opposition. Loving those that society hates, speaking up for the values of God can bring us opposition and I think the challenge for each one of us is that when such opposition happens is not simply to become silent to ignore injustice or to stop what we're doing to simply get it along but to seek God for how to lovingly live for him in all of those situations and a small personal example, probably quite insignificant, but it just it came into my mind this week as I was reading this and studying it, was when I was at university a long time ago now. And um, I was at LSE, and I was the club captain of the football club at LSE. It was, and it was also well known that I was heavily involved in, in Christian Union. So when the university paper, the beaver, had me on the badges for, for sport, which it did most weeks, my name was printed in red because my hair was more ginger at that time rather than in black script. And it always called me one thing. It called me the Reverend Virgin Ginga Haig. Um, and whenever it talks about me giving a talk or half-time teen talk, it would always say my pre-match sermon. I've kept cuttings for posterity. I'll show it the boys at an appropriate time. And um, I was all right with it. I was completely okay with it. But there was one time that particularly sticks in my mind. Um, when after a game, a fellow a team member, uh, a guy called Tom, I'm not still in touch with Tom now, but he asked me in front of others about my faith in, in Jesus. And lots of people were listening. It was actually over a pint. and um, he was asking, And he was asking genuine questions. There was a bit of hostility there. But I think it was because of the ridicule I'd been getting in the beaver, but I think it was my fear of being ridiculed even more. Or maybe it was a bit about my fear of conflict and opposition in that environment and not really wanting to go there that I actually said to him, let's not talk about it now. I don't really want to talk about it. It's more of a personal thing for me. Um, And I gave up that opportunity. And guess what? I never talked to Tom about my faith again. But it's interesting that all these 25 years later... I still remember that. It's still etched on my memory. And so I was thinking as I was studying this and it came back into my mind that I think in all our situations we need to ask our Heavenly Father to strengthen us so that we don't put external peace, getting along with others superficially, ahead of honouring God and doing what he asks of us in speech but also in action. Now, I don't think that means we should be loud and brash and argumentative, looking for fights, getting into people's faces. It's not about that. And again, I can't help but think of our late Queen Elizabeth, of how she managed to wonderfully speak truth, speak of her love of Jesus in words and in actions in a way that was gentle and warm and at the same time courageous, and resolute. And I think there is a challenge for us here from this passage to stand lovingly firm and confess the truth by our words and our actions, sharing God's love with others. And so thirdly, moving on to my final point, rivers of living water. If we look at verse 37, on the last day of the festival, I'm assuming that those hostile to Jesus, they're probably standing there in front of him, maybe waiting for him to slip up. And at that moment, into the face of the Pharisees, chief priests, hostile crowds, temple police, who've come to arrest him, Jesus speaks words of truth and power. Verse 37, towards the end, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. In verse 38, let the one who believes in me drink. As the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. Each day during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the chief priests would lead a a procession um, through the Kidron Valley to the Pool of Siloam and the people there would shout and wave palm branches rejoicing, praising God and then they'd bring this water back up to the altar. There was a lot in this feast about water in the picture and A vision of water and so it was on the final day of this feast that Jesus seized the opportunity to cry aloud let anyone who is thirsty come to me and the first thing that struck me is he's clearly speaking these words to everyone including his his enemies it's a totally open-ended invitation the only qualification he mentions is thirst if we see that verse 37 if anyone anyone any Pharisee, chief priest, uh, temple police that are there to arrest him, any offended person, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Jesus' offer is really clear. It's for everyone, for all, as it is for all of us, for all of humanity. And in the same way that Jesus had spoken of himself as the bread of life in the previous chapter, he now speaks of being the quencher of thirst, the giver of of living water and I do think it's a wonderful picture because Thirst is the most powerful physical need. We die without it. And I know all of us know it, but I, I feel as though I know it a lot at the moment because I'm training for the York Marathon, which is the 16th of October, and I'm normally a half marathon person, not a full marathon person. So these long runs that I've been doing, I have experienced thirst that I have never experienced before. Yesterday I did a 16-miler, and I ran out and I was up on, on Higga Tor. And even with the rain all around me on Higga at all my goodness I was still experiencing all-consuming thirst and so I love the fact that the picture that Jesus is saying is that our soul has something like that that physical thirst when we go without water our body gets thirsty and the soul when it goes without God gets thirsty we're made to live on God We are made to drink from the greatness and wisdom and power and justice and goodness and holiness and love of God. And so what we see here is that what Jesus offers is satisfying. Everything that Jesus came to do and teach is aimed at providing our whole being with that spiritual food and drink that will satisfy forever. Verse 39, if you look at it with me. Now he said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were to receive. For as yet there was no Spirit, because Jesus was not yet glorified. What exactly do we drink? We drink in the presence and person of the risen Lord Jesus. This is what the Father gives to everyone who believes the presence and power and fellowship of the Spirit of the risen and glorified Christ. Once Jesus was with us as an incarnate man and now he is in us by his spirit. We see Jesus say later in the gospel, John chapter 14, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. So in the Holy Spirit, we've got this helper, counselor, sanctifier. And the Holy Spirit is in us to make us more like God, empower us to bring glory to God, to have Jesus living in us, to show God's love to others in the way that we speak and the way that we act. Let the one who believes in me drink, as the scripture has said, out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water literally it actually says out of the believer's belly but i think the point here is our inner being call it belly heart soul spirit when we come to jesus to drink we don't just get a single drink but we get a spring we get a fountain we get a well we get jesus rivers of water will flow because a river maker is in each one of us by his spirit and that's the point we won't ever have to search again. For a source of satisfaction for our soul. And of course, it will overflow from us to others so that we can love others in our words and in our actions. We will be a blessing. It's what the Spirit does for us. And so, as we're coming into land now, I don't think it's any surprise to me that the temple police that the Pharisees sent, if you see in verse 32, we see that they've sent the temple police to get him, they returned to the Pharisees and. We didn't quite get there in our passage. If you just look at verses 45 and 46, the two verses after where we finish this morning, the temple police, they go back and look at what happens, verse 45. Then the temple police went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why did you not arrest him? The police answered, never has anyone spoken like this. Indeed, No one has ever spoken like Jesus. So to finish, God loves us and had a plan. His plan was and is Jesus. He created us to have an unquenchable thirst that can only be filled by him. And he loves to fill us to overflowing, to empower us. And so Jesus cries out to us afresh, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. This is God's invitation to each one of us. His invitation is come, drink, and live. Amen.